2: Thank you to you our listeners for supporting Positively Track and to especially our patrons on Patreon. If you would like to contribute to Positively Track and be a patron on Patreon, visit patreon.com/positivelytrack. You'll get perks like early access to episodes and bonus content. And for those who are in the higher levels, you get shout-outs and associate producer credits and much more. And speaking of shout-outs, let's give a shout out to Carl Morris, Joyce Marin, Jim Stoffel, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, Paul D. Kinnear, and John Blaber. Thank you all for your support. Now, let's go back to the show.
1: But maybe, just maybe, Benny isn't the dream. We are. Maybe we're nothing more than figments of his imagination. For all we know, at this very moment, somewhere far beyond all those distant stars... Benny Russell is dreaming of us.
0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Positively Trek. This is our book club episode. And, you know, I I say a lot of our episodes are special, but this is really a special episode because uh, we've been talking, of course, the last few months about the Coda trilogy, the kind of endgame for the last 20 years of Star Trek literature set in the, the novel verse, the lit verse, as people call it. And we're talking about the final book of that trilogy, Oblivion's Gate by David Mack. With me, of course, as always, is Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. I've been looking forward to this because, you know, we talked to Dayton, we talked to James, but we hadn't finished the trilogy. So now that we know how it ends, David has to answer for everything that we would have thrown out to them (laughs) now that we've gotten to the end. So I'm ready to just
0: throw everything at David. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're very lucky to have him here then to answer for uh, what was done in this trilogy, I guess. David Mack, welcome of course, to Positively Trek.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Excellent. Really happy to have you here. And yeah, yeah, So this trilogy, what a ride, Uh, Bruce, you read this, you were saying quite a while ago, your copy arrived a while ago, I finished reading this an hour and a half before we started recording here today. So uh, it's fresh on my mind. And Bruce, I know you have a ton of questions uh, that you want to ask as well. Uh, So let's just get right into this because
1: Uh, Gentlemen, I presume that we are going to assume anybody listening to this has already read the book and therefore should be warned that we are going to just wade right into deep spoiler territory right off the bat. We're not, we're not holding anything back.
0: Right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. So rooted listener, just yeah. be advised spoilers abound here. there be spoilers. Please
2: read the books and then listen to this. But if you plan to <laughs> never, ever, ever By read all these means. books, then listen. please
1: first pay, pay for, for the, the books. books. Yes. Then read the books. I mean, unless you get them from your library, which I understand is perfectly valid. I love libraries. I support libraries
0: definitely. Yeah, and usually we would have like a little section that's a little spoiler-free, but I think that's pretty much next to impossible with this book. Let's talk a little bit and I we've gotten the perspective of Dayton Ward and James Swallow on this, but I just want to talk to you a little bit about this collaboration because I understand it was pretty unique. Like you've collaborated with authors before on series and stuff when it comes to Star Trek, but this experience was kind of a, a singular event.
1: Well, it was different from some of our previous approaches to collaboration. In the past, over the last, say, 20 years or so, Dayton and I have uh, worked together sort of indirectly as collaborators on Star Trek SCE, or Corps of Engineers. That was a line of monthly ebooks that was published for about five years. And Dayton, working them with his uh, sometimes writing partner, Kevin Delmore, they did numerous installments of SCE. And around the same time, I started breaking in, doing some stories for SCE, first with Keith R.A.D. Candido on a two-parter called Invincible. And then I went solo with my first short novel uh, called Wildfire. So I kind of got used to the give and take of sharing a universe with serial continuity with other authors right from the very beginning. That was the environment that I was introduced into when I first started writing narrative prose for Star Trek. So after that, Dayton and I and Kevin, we ended up working on a nine book miniseries called A Time Two. And that was a miniseries that was meant to chronicle the events of the year in the lives of the Enterprise E crew leading up to the events of the movie Star Trek Nemesis. And again, we had to work in close concert, not just with each other, but with the other authors working in the series. John Vornholt was writing the lead-off books, Time to Be Born and Time to Die, which were about young traveler Wesley being reborn into his full powers. Then we had uh, Dayton Ward and Kevin working on their uh, two books, uh, Time to Sow, Time to Harvest. And then we had Bob Greenberger uh, doing sort of the middle uh, of the pack with Time to Love, Time to Hate dealing with all the unresolved issues between Riker and his father and Riker and Troy and all this other stuff. And then I came in with books seven and eight, Time to Kill, Time to Heal. And Keith Ari to Canada was our cleanup batter, writing book nine, Time for War, Time for Peace. So we got used to collaboration. We would, you know, meet over lunch. At that time, Bob Greenberger still lived in New York City. So did Keith, so did I. So a whole bunch of us would just compare notes over lunch and we just got used to doing that and then after those came out i got tapped to write vanguard by marco palmieri he asked me to co-create the series with him and i deliberately engineered it so that the perfect people he could go to for book two of the series would be dayton and kevin and the reason i did that is that when we first created vanguard marco thought that he was going to want it to be a multi-author series, much like he had done with the Deep Space Nine post-finale books, just as he would have, you know, S.D. Perry write a couple books and have someone else come in and do a few books, someone else would do a few books. He thought he was going to take a similar approach to Vanguard. And my role was going to be co-creator, help him do the show Bible, map out the general direction of the series, write the kickoff book to sort of establish the players, but then leave it for other writers to be able to come in and build on what we'd created. So knowing that, I engineered it, given the general shape of the story, that the best possible people he could call in to do book two would be Dayton and Kevin. This was rather sly of me, of course, because they were my buddies and I wanted to make sure they got work. So they did book two. And while they were doing book two, I was talking with Marco about some other projects. I think I was doing a Wolverine book for him for the Marvel line at that time. And then I got really excited about some of the ideas that I heard Dayton and Kevin were bringing to Vanguard in book two, and I really wanted to write book three. Eventually I struck a deal with uh, with, with Marco. I think uh, I had to sort of decide between doing a DS9 book right away or postponing that and doing Reap the Whirlwind. And I, I think I ended up doing the DS9 book first, but because of scheduling, I got to do both. I think I got to do uh, Warpath for DS9, and then I got to do Reap the Whirlwind, which was book three of Vanguard. And what Marco found out at that point was, this is an interesting dynamic. We've got Mac on one side, and we have ward Dillmore on the other side, and they've got really good complementary styles, complementary creative energies, good collaborative method. Why don't we just go back and forth and have it be a ping pong match where the authors throw the books back and forth and throw ideas at each other, and each one tries to build on what the other one did? And so that's how we approached Vanguard, at least up through the end when we plotted the big finale together. And uh, around this time, I guess there was a Mirror Universe volume. James Swallow got involved with doing the Mirror Universe version of Vanguard. So that sort of got him into our radar and got him talking with us about creative vision and ideas. And then, uh, you know, just again, projects start to add up over the years. We get into a miniseries called fall uh, in 2013 after the end of Vanguard. And James Swallow was working on that. Dayton's working on that. I'm working on that. And we had a good time. We had to sort of plot out this grand, complicated plot with spreadsheets and, you know, columns and pictures and arrows and numbers on the back of each one and yada, yada, yada. But it worked out well. You know, we we were able to communicate well in a communicative, uh, you know, collaborative format. And then by coincidence, when Marco left Pocket Books and then ended up at Tor and happened to know that the editor... Uh, at Forge, was looking for someone to write 24 novels, which was, you know, books based on the TV show 24. But he knew that I loved the show. He knew Mark. uh, He knew that Dayton loved the show. And he he knew that uh, James was already on tap to do book one. So he made the introductions. And then suddenly, you know, there it is again, me, Dayton, and James. Again, the three of us, suddenly, bam, we grab up all three of the 24 books that are on the schedule at, at Forge. And it just keeps happening (laughs) we did did some other project comes around and we team up again we're like you know when it finally came time to put together coda and we were thinking you know in the old days i might have pitched a trilogy like this all by myself those days are gone in the old days there were you know back in the 90s there were 24 books a year coming out from star trek 24 mass market paperback titles a year that was heavy duty Even when they cut it back to one a month, I mean, that was brutal, but it was still one a month, 12 a year. Uh, Now we're down to six a year. And, you know, one writer saying, I'd like to do a trilogy. That's not going to fly. One writer scoops up three books. That only leaves three books and 18 other Star Trek writers saying, I'd like a piece of the pie, please. So we knew that wasn't going to fly. And then there was the timing issue, which was we all started to see this happening around uh, early 2019, we knew we had to move fast to come up with a pitch, get something approved, get the ball rolling, to get something on the schedule and published in a reasonable time frame. And there was no way to do that with just one author writing, because we knew that what the publisher likes is event miniseries, where the three books come out in rapid succession, month after month after month, boom, boom, boom. One writer working alone, you've got to start two, three years out, and you got to have a lot of time because now you're writing one manuscript, you've turned that in, you're writing the next manuscript while you're editing the first manuscript. Then you're in production on first manuscript while you're editing the second manuscript and writing the third manuscript. Your head wants to explode. This was how I wrote Destiny. It is exhausting. It is confusing. And it takes a long, long time. And it's just so much easier when you've got three authors working together on one battle plan simultaneously or near simultaneously executing their manuscripts, which is how we approach this. But for us, it felt like getting the band back together.
2: So then at what point, so the band's back together and you're, you all are deciding where are we going to take this trilogy? What are we going to do? And as we mentioned, we're into spoilers here. And then it was decided, you know what, let's just end this timeline. Was there any other ideas besides that, or was that just the goal? Was like, you know what, it only makes sense. If they were going to end this trilogy, uh, this continuity, we're going to just end it.
1: Well, here's what we knew. We knew the moment that Picard was announced and we saw the time frame for it, late 24th century, 2399, rolling over into early 25th century. At that point, we knew that almost all of the post-Nemesis Literary continuity that we've been working on for the last 20 years, at least the bulk of it that is set in the 24th century, was screwed. That it was inevitable that they were going to establish continuity details in the backstory that were going to be wildly inconsistent with what we had done in prose, and that there would be just no way we could recover. When we first approached the idea, we knew that the continuity was going to come to an end one way or another when we heard about the card was doing and the time frame in which they were doing it, which was late 24th century, the first thing we knew was that they were going to override all of our continuity. They were going to establish details in their backstory that we were simply not going to be able to retcon. We were not going to be able to rework the history of our literary continuity to incorporate these new facts and remain consistent with canon while at the same time preserving what we had done, we had a major discontinuity, and we knew there was no way to fix it, at least no elegant way to fix it. So we had to make a choice, or I should say we knew the publisher had to make a choice. The publisher was either going to simply let the ongoing line of interconnected, serialized 24th century continuity in the novels and just taper off, just say, well, we've done what we've done, let it stop stop doing them don't explain anything it just we're not doing anymore the story ends wherever the books were when you last left off that's one way to go and you know sometimes there's you know the star wars approach where you rebrand it uh legends to show that it's apocryphal and no longer connects to the ongoing continuity but we didn't like that i mean we knew a lot of fans kind of got a little irked with star wars about the whole legends thing mostly because star wars promised canonicity in its books in a way Star Trek never has but there was also just a feeling of it's incomplete you've got all these stories they've been running for 20 years across multiple book series and to suddenly just let them taper off one day we stop doing it and we don't explain why there's no explanation within universe within the context of the story to say what happened and why it happened where did it go? Did it keep going? Did it not keep going? We thought, well, what's worse, knowing or not knowing? And okay, so there's something to be said, you know, for uh, you know, epistemic ambivalence, but I felt like having a definitive answer was probably a better way to go from a, a storytelling standpoint, to feel like these 20 years, maybe they were building to something, to some sort of finale, to some sort of grand story or grand revelation. And that was how it came about. We, we talked about various possibilities. We said, does the timeline, as a core, you know, as a consequence of our story, does it have to definitively end? Is there room for ambiguity? Is there a way to do this where we neither say that it does or say that it doesn't end? Is there some way to leave it open to interpretation? Obviously, there is a way to do that. There, is, there must be some way to do that. The fact that you can ask the question, Implies there is some way to do that. The question was, is that what we wanted to do? And the answer for us turned out to be no. To us, that felt like a cop out. That's saying we can't choose. We don't know which is the better answer, and we don't feel confident enough as storytellers to make a choice. So choosing the well, it maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Well, I mean, you got to be really something to pull off the I don't know, and have that be an elegant, satisfying ending. To me, that's not a satisfying ending. To me, that's a cop-out. And then there's the idea of, well, why didn't we have the happy ending? You know, they could go through some grand struggle, and at the end of it, they separate their timeline off from the prime timeline forever, but they go on happily leading their lives. Well, so what? There's no change in the status quo if you do that. Yes, we're separated from the prime timeline forever. So what? What does that mean to the characters? How in any way is that a sacrifice? It's not. It's a preservation of a status quo. And again, it leaves you in this state of epistemic ambivalence where you don't know what's going to happen after the end of the story. It's not an ending. It's not a conclusion. It's not an answer. And the problem, of course, is then you come to the, well, then there's the downer ending, which is, for some reason... Our characters have to confront the fact that their timeline is going to end, that it is unavoidable, that it is unescapable, but that they have to make the best of it, that there's got to be some good in it. And it's up to them to find the good in it, to inject the good into it. To, to us, that felt like a story. That felt like something where there's a struggle. And to us, it spoke to the current age we live in, which it feels in many ways like, a uh, a time of hopelessness, a time where we're watching uh, institutions and countries and governments and uh, just ideas of democracy decay and fall apart. We're watching the things that we thought would persist just disintegrate around us. There's a feeling of we're looking at the end times. I mean, it's probably not, it's a time of transition, but it's, it's a scary time and it's a depressing time for a lot. And we felt like maybe this is something that we need to address. And then there's also the fact that for many people, myself included, 2020 was just a horrible, horrible year between the pandemic, uh, the politics of the time, and so many other issues. And then for me, it was just a trifecta uh, where in January of 2020, my longtime creative uh, and personal and professional idol, Neil Peart of Rush, died of brain cancer. A few months later, at the end of April of 2020, my mother died. And then at December of 2020, about a year ago, my friend, fellow Star Trek author, Dave Gallenter died. And they all died of cancer. And so it was just this triple whammy. Just keep getting hit with the inevitability of loss, the inevitability of change. And I think that, to a certain extent, Dayton was feeling this. James was feeling this. And I think in the end, uh, really the analogy, what we're dealing with here, if you look at it, the symbolism is very clear. It's not like it's the subtlest thing I've ever written. The Davidians are simply an analog for death. They are death incarnate. And it is about how do you deal with the end of your life when you know it's coming, when you've seen the end coming at you and you know there's no escape, there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide. What do you do? Do you curl up and die, or do you find some reason to fight? Do you find some reason to make it so that your death is not an empty statement, so that it's not just a blank page? And so, in many ways, that was what we decided. We said, you know what? This is a story that has meaning. It's about the dying of the light and refusing to succumb to it, refusing to simply surrender. It's about people who decide they're going to fight to the last second, they're going to fight to find something good. Even if we can't save ourselves, we can't save what we love, we can't save our universe, we can at least try to do something that will put an end to this pointless, arbitrary carnage, a firewall for it, a firebreak, end it here, so that it hits us, we take the last hit, but we spare countless others from something you know this horrible. And that's a heroic gesture. It you know, it, it seems to some like a futile gesture, an empty gesture. They they get furious that you know, oh my god, these people they just died for nothing. Well, they didn't die for nothing. They they died for the noblest of all things. The measure of a society is its willingness to sacrifice for others. The willingness to sacrifice for people you don't know, who you will never meet, who will never know of your sacrifice, but you do it anyway, that's heroism. Heroism where you're doing it because you expect people to sing your praises or sing a song about you when you're done, that's a little bit vainglorious. There's a touch of ego there. But if you know that you're dying for a cause, but at the end of it, no one will know you did it, that's heroism.
0: And that to me, like really speaks to me as a Star Trek fan. And I mean, Star Trek gets used as an adjective by all kinds of people to describe things that they feel is a very Star Trek thing you know, for good or ill, but, but to me, the idea of, like you say, sacrificing yourself and your reality for people who you've never met, will never know, and will never know that you did that for them. That to me just, yeah, it screams like the ultimate heroism. That idea is really at the core of what everyone is doing in this story and was that one that was in there from the beginning? Or did that kind of evolve as you uh, decided how the story was going to go?
1: I think that evolved over the course of several discussions. We It took a number of back and forth, a number of weekly meetings between myself, Dayton, and James. Most of which we conducted either over Zoom or Google Meet or something similar. It took a number of meetings before we settled on an ending. We talked about, you know, we tried to explore different ways to find the happy ending, the ambivalent, the ambiguous ending. But eventually when we said what feels true, what feels honest, and most importantly, what feels consequential, what feels meaningful, where is the drama, which ending gives us the greatest potential for alteration to status quo and therefore the greatest chance for personal suffering and therefore personal growth and change. And we realized it was in the tragic ending. So that was what we chose to pursue. And although I suppose it would have been possible to try and take a broader, more societal perspective on it, uh, broadening it out, involving the Typhon Pact powers, et cetera, et cetera. In the end, we felt like this is a story that's happening on a very personal level. Yes, it's a cosmic disaster, which happens on a level that's so great. We really, our brains are not made to comprehend the scale on which this tragedy is occurring so the only way to make this relatable in a dramatic format is to bring it down to the most intimate personal possible level we can and then interpret that cosmic tragedy on the level of personal loss because we felt that's where the story is anything else it's going to feel very hard to really engage the reader emotionally because then it becomes too intellectual it becomes too too much of to a remove so we tried to bring the tragedy down to the personal level in almost every interaction. Like in James Swallow's book, he's got some great scenes with uh, Chancellor Martok and, uh, and Clagg as they're you know, defending Boreth, They're trying to stop the loss of the monastery and the time crystals, all of which are sacred to the Klingons. And they can't. It's a last stand. They know it's a last stand. They know it's futile. They know they're not going to make it out. This is, this is the Alamo for them. And they know it, but they hold their ground. They go down fighting with honor because it's better to go down swinging your sword than to just fall on your knees and take it. Those were the kind of conversations that we, we had about, you know, why are we doing this? And, you know, how do, how do we feel about it? And we, we felt it had to happen at an intimate level because really, in the end, that's why people read these stories, at least I think. I mean, in the end, I feel like you've got to care about the characters and the core characters, the core cast. I know that the more literary original characters, well, Dayton dealt with them pretty heavily in book one and James dealt with sort of uh, many of the remaining uh, sort of major lit characters in book two, at least to our satisfaction. So that by the time we got down to book three, we'd really whittled it down to the, you know, almost the, uh, the original TV characters. There were some of the Titan characters, but I, of course I inherited the, t- you know, Admiral, the Badmiral story of, you know, crazy Riker I know some people feel like that went on for too long I'm like but I'm like do you understand that book three happens over the course of about what three hours and then take into account how hard it is to remove an admiral from command in a military setting you you come at the king you better you better nail him on the first shot because you don't get another you know so trying to take down a flag officer I think a lot of people are like well, why did they just take him down? It was clearly crazy. It doesn't matter if he's crazy. Dude's a flag officer in a military setting. You just suck it up and smile and say, yes, sir. It's mm-hmm. so like he's crazy. I know he's crazy, but he's an admiral. What are you going to do?
2: Yeah, I kind of half expected Tuvok was going to step in and do something on the bridge when the Admiral Riker was there. But, you know, I, I'm glad you talked about the characters because there's so many characters that have been introduced in the last 20 years in these books And you can't get to every single one of these characters and have them be the focus of this. And it makes sense that you focus on the core. Like you said, I mean, Dayton touched on some, you know, the literary characters and so did James. But it really comes down to this this core group that we're more familiar with because of the TV series. But I know there's some people out there that are probably wondering, well, where's Voyager and all this. And we have Tom and Balana there. And of course, Tuvok, but we really don't touch a whole lot on, on Voyager. Is that because you just wanted Kirsten to have that last swung song or just, there's just not room to bring Voyager back into it.
1: We were told hands off of Voyager. Uh, first of all, a lot of things that, you know some of the folks who are commenting, why wasn't there this? Why wasn't there that? Why didn't she use these guys or that guys? Well, there were a lot of conditions. Tie-in writing is one of those professions where you don't get to do everything exactly the way you want every time. Sometimes you have to take into account the needs of other creators who are sharing that space with you. Sometimes you have to take into account the desires of the licensor, uh, the needs of the parent property. So for instance, we didn't really have a major part for Voyager in this trilogy because Kirsten Bayer had her own creative vision for how she wanted to dramatically tie off and end her Voyager storyline. Uh, she's reaching a point where, you know, she just doesn't have the time anymore to write full-length novels. She's enmeshed in TV production. It is all-consuming. So she did the best she could, and she got a great novel out to lose the Earth, And that was pretty much for her. She had planned that to be the end. That was her Voyager swan song. That was the whole idea was she said, you know, this is going to represent the culmination of all the full circle fleet stories that I've been working on. And although it seems like, you know, you're being left with these unanswered questions as they depart the galaxy, in a way that's the note she wanted to end on. And she made it very clear, you know, that that was where she wanted her characters left. She wanted the fleet left there. and. So we were told don't mess with it you know don't try to bring them back don't try to involve them at a distance because anything we might try to do was only going to in at least in Kirsten's eyes and the editor's eyes impair all the work Kirsten had done to create the ending she wanted for those characters she had them where she wanted them didn't want us messing it up by the same token Because the full circle fleet and the Voyager books were so involved in the status quo of the Delta Quadrant, the Delta Quadrant species, the politics, et cetera, they wanted us as much as possible to go hands off on that too. Don't upset the apple cart. Don't disrupt too much of what Kirsten has done. Yes, it's all going to get erased when we blow up the timeline, yada, yada, yada. But in terms of where it is narratively, don't mess with it. Leave her work alone. Uh, don't unravel it. Don't disrespect it by playing with the toys. She put the toys where she wanted them, leave them where she put them. Same rule applied to Q. We actually, we had conversations about ways to involve Q or not involve Q. Should we, shouldn't we? Do we want Q? Do we want the Metrons? Do we want the Dow, the Calamarane? Uh, Do we want uh, these guys or those guys? We were expressly told, and this was no uncertain terms. This wasn't just the editors. This came from on high. This came from Los Angeles don't use Q. You can't have Q. You can't use Q. He cannot appear in your trilogy. He can't appear. We were told, don't even think about it. Maybe you mention him as to why, you know, people speculating, why is he not there? But you can't answer the question. But most of all, you can't use him. So it's not that we said, oh, well, you know, I guess the Q just aren't important or whatever. It's not that we didn't think that there was some rational explanation for why the Q could or couldn't be involved. Uh, although we did eventually discount them as being too heavily deus ex machina. It's like, well, what's the point of a story when you can just have God come out of a box and wave it away? What's the, what's the point? Nobody grows, nobody changes, nobody loses anything. There's no consequences. But even if we wanted to go that route, we couldn't go that route. We were told explicitly, you cannot use Q. And that was the end of it. And those are the conditions you're given as Italian writer and you accept them and you go forward.
0: Well, let's uh let's talk a little bit about the actual kind of story of book 3 in particular, but the the trilogy as a whole because we haven't really talked about you know, the events of it. One thing that I found really fascinating was the linking back to the temporal vortex in first contact as kind of the moment for the creation of of this splinter universe, the splinter timeline. How was that idea arrived at to kind of use that as the nexus point? And I I shouldn't say nexus point because that'll confuse it with something else entirely. But, you know,
1: (laughs) it's the pivot point. I give all credit for that to Dayton Ward. It was Dayton who saw that possibility and who brought that to the table. Before I had met with Dayton to talk about the idea, I had first met with James. James had come into town for a conference. Uh, He had Saturday off. I said, hey, why don't you come with me and my wife? We're going out to a friend's barbecue in Jersey. I have an idea I want to pitch to you. So we picked him up at his hotel. We went out to Jersey. We had beers. We had brisket. We had burgers. And then we got to chatting, and I pitched him the idea of CODA. And James said, I don't want anything to do with this. I think this is a terrible idea. And I had to talk him into it. And finally, I sort of brought him around and we started hashing out story ideas. And then Keith R.A. DeCandido came in and Glenn Howland came in. You know, here we are, four Star Trek writers, just sort of free-forming. You know, it's like jazz. Suddenly we're having a jazz session, an improv, uh, you know, jam. And we're just... Sending ideas back and forth and riffing on each other and you know i write down a bunch of the stuff in my phone and i take it home and i turn it into something and then a couple of weeks later i bring it to Dayton at shore leave and i say hey i wanted to talk about this you know obviously you know as well as i do that picard's coming down the pike he knew because at that point he had just started working for star trek licensing so he was seeing the scripts the story outlines the deal memos he's seeing all of it and i know of course because i you know, I talk regularly with Kirsten Bayer, so she keeps me in the loop on what's coming down the pike, what to expect, at least generally. But in this case, Dayton knew a lot more than I did. He had far more detailed knowledge than I did. And I pitched him my idea and he said, Well, no, he says that's not gonna work for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of stuff coming up in the show. Uh, and so you know, the idea, although it's a good idea, he said it's not gonna work because this, that, and the other thing. I said, so can we just do this? And he he laughs at me and he goes, dude, it is so much worse than you think. And then he begins to spell out all the details and he watches my face go slack. I'm like, oh my God, we're (laughs) f***ed. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we are. But we realized, and then he said, but there's a way. I go, all right what is it and he says well because the problem is you know we've got to have a point at which we establish the divergence occurred between that continuity and our literary continuity but it can't be too close to where the picard story is or where key elements of its backstory begin because if it's too close and then they establish some other detail from around the same period then we're boned." so it's plus We have to take into account like he says we can't just for instance rewind our continuity a little bit to 2385 to include the whole synth rebellion on mars that they show in season one of picard says because that doesn't explain all of the many discontinuities that still exist between our continuity and theirs that go back to the time two books which were set in the year before nemesis so like all right that takes us back to 2378 Uh, And he said, all right, so he says, we know we have to rewind to at least there and then probably farther back. Says, So what he did is he started looking for, well, what would be a logical in-story, canonical junction point? And he was looking at generations, but then he realized first contact was better. Blatant time travel, temporal vortex, Borg. Borg are known to be high-tech, and now you've got this alternate universe version of Borg to play with as well. Who knows what their capabilities are? And once he laid that out, I was like, oh, that's brilliant. But then my immediate reaction was I recoiled, and I went, oh, but Christ, I don't want to deal with the Borg. I went to all the trouble to get the damn Borg off the board in Destiny. And we're going to put them back in play? And he goes, well, what do you want to do? He says, you want to do that? You want to come up with something else? I go, no, that's actually pretty brilliant. And I said, you know what? In a way, it's actually kind of great. Picard thinks they're off the board. We all think they're off the board. The readers all think they're off the board. And then we find out that's the parallel world we have to go back to to deal with this once and for all. It's like, yeah, Picard, you thought you were done with this. Guess what? You have to face your worst, most terrible fear and your most hated antagonist. You've got to face them one last
2: and man, was that great, seeing Picard go against that boy oh, yeah. queen and every... Oh, my
1: gosh. And not get what he was expecting at all. Just that moment. I mean, I love right now. There's a piece of music that inspired that whole moment. A lot of the moments, a lot of the great moments from this trilogy were inspired by uh, the soundtracks for the HBO series, His Dark Materials. The music is by Lorne Balfe. And there's a piece called uh, The City, I think, on the season two uh, soundtrack. And it has this incredibly ominous, you know, just massive upswell of, uh, of orchestra, which is just the perfect cue. First of all, it's like this really kind of brooding, ominous thing where you can sort of imagine Picard walking through the industrial corridors with all the red beams coming down at him from all the drones, watching him every step of the way. And then there's just this massive orchestral swell of ominous music. And I could just see this enormous, titanic, Demonic Borg Queen with nanites, you know, airborne nanites in this black cloud like wings lifting her up. Before, you know, the Queen comes down, you know, it's like the torso on cables, whatever. It's very Frankenstein. It's like, okay, that's Frankenstein. This is Faust. Mm. This is the devil coming out of the pit. He basically, that's the moment when Picard has an arrested development moment. I've made a huge mistake.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) That scene. I have to admit, you know, going back to the Borg, I was like the same as you, like, oh no, the Borg again, really? But man, that scene, I probably was more invested in that scene than any other scene in the book. I was like so into that. And I was so appreciative that we had the Borg in this. But the other thing that got to me is I love the Borg being a play because they learn about the events of destiny through Picard, the Borg Queen does, and she's interdimensional. So this kind of answers why the events of destiny won't happen in the prime timeline or possibly won't happen in the prime timeline because the Borg are aware of it now. I thought that was brilliant.
1: And it's, that's the moment Picard has. He has this realization of how many times might they have already tampered with their own origin? Mm-hmm. It's like the origin I thought they have, they may have altered it so many times. I may have just gotten lucky. And basically what that does is it helps sort of, it opens the door to reconciliation of the many conflicting uh, canon and non-canon details that have been offered or introduced regarding the origin of the Borg, where's the first species, where's the original home world, etc. There's a lot of conflicting details, even in canon. Well, if you take into account that this is a species that has time travel capability and is just reckless enough to tamper with things, they may have altered their own origin more than once, which I think is an ominous uh, premise unto itself.
0: Yeah, I love that kind of... There's a few moments in here where there's kind of almost a meta touching on like the, the background of stuff. And that was definitely one where I was like, Oh, the whole
1: book is meta. The whole book is meta. Absolutely. The whole thing is a commentary on us blowing up 20 years of our own work.
0: Yeah. I I kept thinking of, and I I tried not to think of this, but I'm like, you know, the Davidians coming in and devouring everything. I'm like, do they have a big, uh, you know, Viacom CBS logo on the side of their, (laughs) no, 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 not at
1: all. No, no. they, They would work for secret hideout.
0: There you go. Yep. (laughs) And then even uh, the choice of the the first contact as being the inflection point, I thought of like how many times over the years we have fans who, uh, you know, they're like, oh, Enterprise doesn't fit in the other continuity. It was first contact. First contact messed it up. And that's why everything's changed. And I was like. This kind of feels like almost a little bit of a nod to that. I kind of like that.
1: You know what? If it just occurred to me, if only I thought of it while writing the book, I should have, but didn't. At some point I should have had somebody refer to the Davidians intertime space station as their secret hideout.
0: Yeah, there you go.
1: (laughs) I didn't do it. In retrospect, I should have done it. That's a missed opportunity.
0: Oh man. That's great. Well, if this ever gets put out as like an omnibus, you have to sneak that edit in there. I think there will be
1: no omnibus.
0: Dude. <laughs> <laughs> just change the ebook. Yeah, there you go.
1: Yeah, I'll make an edit to the ebook. I'll ask my editors. Let's just <laughs> say, please. Oh,
2: I love it. So let's talk about this. These splinters, because the book starts off with the second splinter, and we see our core characters in the fights and dying, and we're thinking, at least I'm thinking, oh, I guess we're getting the ending of this book up front but then we learn later in the book about the first splinter and that's really what this timeline is called the first splinter timeline
1: and then you recontextualize what you read in the prologue that was the idea was that was the idea was to sort of set up a misdirect so that when you're first encountering the book you see the title the section title on the prologue the second splinter but you don't know what that means it's undefined you're like second splinter what the hell does that mean and then it just it passes out of your mind as you begin reading this brutal bloody action sequence where everybody's dying left and right they're at the last stand no help is coming and they fail and it ends with you know spoiler alert it ends with Picard on the ground realizing I've gone through all this I've sacrificed everything only to see the courage of heroes fail and it leads you to think you know this is, the pre- this is a preview, this is a flash forward of the end of this book. It, it's all gonna go down in flames. And then you see the, you, know, you flip it in the next page, you've got uh, part one, the section title, uh, you know, only, only moments between. And then you've got the time shift where it says two days before the end. Well, I didn't say two days earlier. I said two days before the end. Not two days before what you just saw. Not two days before that. I didn't say rewind two days. I said, it's two days before the end, our end, not their end. But it's a misdirect. I, I Basically, I give the reader something where they are open to misinterpret it for dramatic effect so that later when they hit the revelation near the end of part one, where the heroes have to point out you know, to uh, to Picard, or actually it's to Sisko saying, all right, so how do we get to this for Splinter to fix things? And they have to look at him and Data says, sir, I believe you may have misinterpreted part of our presentation. We are the first splinter. And you can just hear the music hit. You can hear the stinger as as Cisco's eyes just go wide. And it's like, ah. And then like once you have that, once you have that expression, first splinter, and you realize we are the first splinter, and then you realize first splinter, second splinter. I watched the death of another time lock. Now you've got that. But now that you've been given that, you've been told these are the stakes. This is the mess we're walking into. This is how badly it can go. But now, you know, you haven't seen the end. You saw their end. Now, you know, all bets are off. It might go that way. It might go another way. And suddenly, you know, it recontextualizes what you thought was a flash forward was in fact, the end of another timeline.
0: Yeah, to start the book off with that was like a kick in the stomach moment. And then, yeah, as you get those pieces and you kind of piece it together and realize what you're seeing, I, I, just, I love that kind of slow burn the novel gives you that, that you kind of figure it all out as you go and, and, and you know, realize that, like, you know, these are the stakes, like you said, and, and this is where it could all end, but hopefully not.
1: Yeah, I know some people get confused by all the temporal techno babbles, I call it, but I tried as hard as I could. To make it as clear as I could, and, I, and the reason it got stated more than one time is that I know sometimes people don't always get it the first time they read it. Mm-hmm. I tried to make it really clear this is what happened, this is why it happened. I even make sure to have the character say, wait, run that by me again. Why is this one unstable but this one isn't? I answer it. So I'm trying to anticipate why is what is the reader confused about, and I'm trying to give them the answers.
2: I didn't find it confusing at all. And what I like about it, if you really stop and think about it, you you didn't wipe out the whole lit verse. You just everything from first contact forward, all the things that happened past, like you mentioned Vanguard earlier, you know, the
1: lost air. As far as we, as far as we know, Vanguard is untouched. Vanguard is intact.
0: I do love, um, I can't remember exactly where in the novel it happens, but there is one part where uh, data is explaining something and, do you want to explain that again? I don't really get it. And Data's like, suffice it to say that, you know, it's it's this, this, and this, and don't worry about the rest. And I was kind of like,
1: Oh, I think it's when Beverly is questioning it. Oh, and she's yes. like, you know, and he says, Well, you know, really, you know, your son worked out all the mechanics and this and that and the other thing. And she goes, Wesley did this? And he says, Yes, your son really has an extraordinary grasp of spatiotemporal mechanics. And uh I think it's something to the effect of, you know, it's just, it's in Beverly's point of view where she's sort of speaking for the average reader where she's going, hang on, can I, am I really the only person in the room who doesn't get what the hell we're doing? Am I really the only one here who doesn't get this? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you're really the only one here who doesn't get this. But it's okay because we give her a hero moment later on. I, I, I kind of loved writing for Beverly in this book because I feel like Beverly has gotten such... A raw deal at the hands of the TV producers and in the movies, she was never really given great stuff to do. So I, just, I, I went into this knowing I want Beverly to have an absolutely awesome hero moment, and I want to give her a killer movie quality hero line of dialogue to accompany that hero moment. And I ran it by Dayton Ward. And I remember the first time I ran it by him. He says, "I laughed out loud because I love that line." And that's the line. Damn it! There we go very happy with how her part turned out. And I feel like the book sort of has its love for Beverly wears it on its sleeve.
0: Yeah. It's really good to see. Cause yeah, like you said, she's, she's really been uh, given short shrift a lot in the past. So
1: plus, you know, all of Wesley's scenes where he's uh, clearly in anguish over, you know, losing his mother, you know, it's no coincidence. I'm writing these scenes in the months leading up to and the months following my mother's death. Of course. Yeah. So, what are you going to say?
0: Well, one thing, uh, that I thought was kind of, I I guess I called it a bit of a special treat in this novel was the, uh, the trip to the mirror universe and the use of those characters because, I'm I'm thinking of like the last twenty years of the novel verse and all of that, and I I have to admit I hadn't really given much thought to the mirror universe, but of course there's some great novels in there, The Sorrows of Empire, Rise Like Lions, and then of course their more recent appearances in some of the novel verse stuff
1: in Disavowed, I think, yeah, specifically, and and uh, they also had a minor. Well, they weren't in, but they were mentioned in Cold Equation's Silent Weapons.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The John and there was Chip also Saturn's Chosep.
1: Children, which was part of the Terran Revolution story. Right. That was in the Obsidian Alliance's uh, anthology.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The appearance of the Mirror Universe or their use in this story, uh, was that something that you like had on your list to address for sure in, the, in these novels? Oh,
1: it was on my wish list. I mean, obviously, I know there's a certain amount of, you know, Ego that goes with this. But for me, there was a nostalgia aspect to the project, which is that you know, as we're saying goodbye to this 20-year shared literary experiment, each of us, me, Dayton, and James, in our own way, sort of focused on those elements of Treklet with which we are most closely associated, that in which we've had the greatest hand. And for me in particular, that was the mirror universe. I invested a lot into. Bringing my vision of the Mirror Universe to TrekLit, and you know, at the you know risk of you know my fellow authors you know saying my head is too big to fit through the door anymore, I really did change the trajectory of the Mirror Universe in the shared treklet continuity in a way that really nobody else did. I, I dare to say it doesn't have to be the same status quo that we were handed by the TV show. It's It's not just this farcical place where people dress funny and die for no good reason. It's a place where there are other potentials, where lives have taken other paths, but just because they've taken a dark and violent path up until this point, it does not mean they are condemned to always follow this path. It does not mean that they are prohibited from growth, from change, from improvement. And the very fact that they take on the concept of rebellion and revolution, that they are now fighting to get back freedom that they've lost. The fact that we're told in DS9 crossover that at some point after our heroes left in Mirror Mirror, Spock took control of the empire and heeded the advice that was given to him by Kirk to change things, to bring about democracy, to bring about the end of empire. Spock tried, you know, I mean, they were, there was a certain amount of taking the concept seriously. And I feel like the TV writers never did to them. It was a big joke. They treated all of it like a big joke. And I said, what if it doesn't have to be a joke? What if you took these people's, these characters, these versions of the characters, what if you took their lives as seriously as you took the ones in the prime universe? What if their lives are just as important? What if their suffering matters just as much as ours? And that was the approach I took to it. And as a result, I became very invested in them uh, in their backstories and their losses, uh, particularly in Wise Like Lions, you know, it's the cost of war. It's uh, how you put together, how you bond a crew into a family and then what happens when that family gets shattered in battle, there's a whole lot going on there. And so after, I mean, I really only did, you know let's say four full length novels plus a piece of short fiction in the mirror universe but I feel like I accomplished a lot in those, you know, in those five works to the point where, you know, I I said, I really just, I need to revisit this universe one last time and have it be part of the big finish. I feel like those characters have earned their right to be part of the finale. I I wouldn't have felt right, not including
0: them. And I'm really personally glad you did. Like I feel like it gets overlooked a lot, but like rise like lions was one of my favorite novels of the last chunk of of star trek literature so yeah it was it was so great to see the jaunt ships and KLR and all and all of that again because uh the, i i feel like that was a really special part of it for sure
1: oh plus once we decided to bring in the mirror universe and we're saying well you know we're, we're gonna throw basically all the pieces on the table everything on the board for the big finale it's like you know nothing is verboten and we were talking about, well, how do we incorporate this element? Where are we going to use that? How do we bring in the mirror universe? And once we had this notion of our characters seeking asylum in the mirror universe and seeking aid and you know and comfort from these characters in the uh, the, the Galactic Commonwealth, and I was like, all right, so who do who we still have on the board by the end of book two? Who's here? And I realized, you know, Worf is going to be there and I go. And that's the moment I immediately just clicked in my head, a potential I'd never actually even thought of exploring before. Holy crap, Worf is about to meet Mirror Kalar. Mm -hmm. And the moment I, I went, oh my God, that's a story in and of itself. Worf and Mirror Kalar. So in the middle of this grand sweeping tragedy of timeline collapsing around them is this bittersweet romance where Worf, who has had the worst romantic luck three loves of his life ripped out from under. Hes had to watch Kalar die. he had to, he saw Jadzia die, and then he had to lose Jasminder. you know he lost Chowdhury. He's lost three you know, three people he loved and cared about. and then I thought, wouldn't it be ironic if at the very end he's the one who lies dying as his tigress stands above him defending him. I thought that's a poetic end. just the, just the symmetry, the book ending of it just the You've had to suffer this loss three times. Now someone gets to defend you in your last moment. How are you got to, to do that. Plus, I just love K.R.
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> What's not to love?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. It was great to see the two of them together. The thing about this is, I haven't read. I read your first short story in the Mirror Universe. I haven't got to the others. I have them, but I and I've been wanting to one day get to them. But now after reading this that's the next thing I want on my list is to go through it. Cause I got so invested in the mere universe and that's saying a lot. The fact that I'm not coming from a place of reading those books into this, what happened here at the end got me interested enough to want to go read those books. I, I love your take If you do, that. if you want
1: to read uh, the Mirror Universe stuff that I did, don't read the version of Sorrows of Empire that was first published in the Glass Empires anthology.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's the only one I've ever well, read. I did, so. an, I
1: did an expanded, improved version where I took that story, which was about 40-some-odd thousand words. And I expanded it out to about 80,000, 90,000 words into a full-length novel version of The Sorrows of Empire. What you want to pick up is the full-length novel, the 80,000, 90,000-word standalone novel, The Sorrows of Empire. Read that. Then read the other stories in Glass Empires. Then read Obsidian Alliances, particularly paying attention to the one called Saturn's Children, which I wrote under the pseudonym Sarah Shaw. Uh, That's the sort of the beginning, that's the origins, the the difficult origins of the Terran Rebellion, their growing pains, um, the infighting, the near self-destruction of the Terran Rebellion. And then that's followed by Rise Like Lions, which is the Terran Revolution. And then after that, we return uh, to the Mirror Universe in my Section 31 novel, Disavowed. But actually, before you read Disavowed, which was, I think, published in 2014, go back to 2012, and get my Cold Equations novel, uh, this, uh, Silent Weapons. Silent Weapons, you know, spoiler alert, big spoilers here. There's this whole thing involving the brain. They've got all these weird technologies. And it turns out they're causing all kinds of mayhem all over different parts of, the, you know, of local space. And the reason they're doing it is they want everybody to be looking everywhere except this one quiet little planetoid that's sitting inside Federation space. And they are very covertly trying to do a salvage job salvage a starship that they have found crashed on the surface of this planet this crashed vessel it turns out is a mirror universe jaunt ship that has somehow through a wormhole drive jumped across the universal divide and has crashed on this little planetoid and the Breen has somehow found it before we did and they are going through this incredibly convoluted scheme to try and salvage this thing because they're like well we can't seem to get our hands on the slipstream drive but if we get our hands on this we can take the lead in the propulsion race over the federation our heroes thwart them from this goal in the silent weapons so the breen later on two years later they come around and they have the an even more brilliant button they say well we'll just go to the mirror universe ourselves and we'll hijack one of those ships and we'll just steal the damn thing and bring it back ourselves so Bashir and his gal Serena Douglas who are now technically working for section 31 Get tapped by thirty-one to go and stop the Breen from bringing back a, 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 a jaunt ship, and of course that in mission gets interrupted. And, you know they get to the mirror universe, and Bashir has his own problems in the mirror universe. There's a whole thing he goes through, but then the twist ending. I love this. They are in a final battle with the Breen, who have hijacked one of the jaunt ships, and are trying to get it back to their universe. And in the final battle, the brain controlled ship is damaged as it tries to make the wormhole jump. Wormholes, as you might remember, don't just traverse space. They can also traverse time. Not only do they jump into our universe, but they jump back two years. And they wind up crashing it on the very planet where they found the wreck that first enticed them. In, and they realize that they have created the very situation that drew them into this stupid mission. And the Breen commander actually has the thought, I am fortune's fool. I love that little moment. where it's like, it's like, if you haven't read silent weapons, then you don't know about this. But if you've read it and you go, Oh my God, two years ago, I read this. Story, and this is the, Oh, son of a, <laughs>
0: that's excellent. Yeah. I had forgotten that twist. That's I'd love to go back and, you know, actually Bruce, we should, we should do like a mirror universe series of uh, book club episodes. Cause I'd love to go back and read those again.
2: Well, I'm, this sounding better than what I've been reading recently with IDW. I like this this version of Mirror. here. By. Well,
1: it's interesting that IDW, too, they, they've got an interesting approach to it where they're not really worrying about staying beholden to what was established on DS9 uh, about, you know, the, the Terran Empire falling uh, under Spock, or whatever. They've got it still persisting or it fell partly here but not there. So they're doing their own kind of retcon alternate universe take on it. I took an approach to said all right let's completely obey what canon said but then recontextualize it both approaches are completely valid it'll come as no surprise i prefer mine
0: another aspect of this novel that that just really tugged at my heartstrings and and was really touching were uh some of the goodbyes of course you you kind of almost have this this greater freedom because you know this this timeline's toast you can kind of do whatever you want which is a lot of fun but we get these amazing ends to some of these characters and there's so many we could talk about, but one that just leapt off the page and I just loved, and I'm going to treasure this little bit of writing forever is Geordi and Data, that final conversation they have where Geordi's struggling to put into words and Data just interrupts him and says, Geordi, I love you too. And it was just.
1: Yeah. Cause they've had all these difficulties. You know, that I guess there was a falling out in their relationship. In uh, I believe it was The Light Fantastic by Jeff Lang, where, you know, basically Jordy had been struggling, I guess, with the you know, emotional fallout of his friend coming back from the dead and then realizing Data 2.0 is data, but also isn't data. There are He's not exactly the same person, but in many ways he is. He's just, he's changed. It's like his, his friend got a soul transplant. And so he recognizes the memories, but it doesn't necessarily recognize the core of the person, but... Anyway, so they have this falling out in Life Fantastic, which sort of left them not exactly on the best of terms. Still friends, but estranged strange somehow. Were, uh, something had crept in. Something had interfered with their bond. Their, their friendship had become tainted or broken or interrupted somehow. And it just it felt to me like in this moment where because, you know, earlier in the story when Worf is asking him, uh, asking LaForge, you know, how did you deal with this, you know, when, when, you know with Data? And they sort of have to get into that. And it's that conversation. The subtext of it is that as Jordy is explaining to Worf how he adapted to the return of data and how he learned to accept who data was, it's really LaForge reconciling this to himself and realizing, I should have, you know, I, I should have fixed this. I should have mended this fence by now. So that when finally he has this, realizes this is his last opportunity to ever speak to data. He's trying to get these words out. He's stumbling over himself, and of course, you know, it's Data whose mind moves at you know, quadrillion operations per second. And he just gets there ahead of him and just realizes we don't have time for this. I have to let him off the hook here. <laughs> but there's also just something very tender about it. It's like I love you too, Jor. It's like it's just it's pure agape friendship. It's just pure brotherly love.
2: I just realized we've seen Data die three times now.
1: Yeah, we saw him die in Time Zero. We saw him die in Nemesis, and we've seen him die here.
2: Well, and then in Picard, so that's four.
1: Oh, yeah, where you know, the, the memory dies. So, yeah, we're before. four. Yeah. That's not bad. And five more, and he's a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, somebody pointed out, you know, how many times have we seen Wesley die in this trilogy? If you count all the alternates who died in book two, he's got to be up to, like, 12, 15. But we see at least one version of Wesley die in each book.
2: Yeah, we have.
1: So we each, ha- we each get a Wesley mm-hmm. done. Yeah. Each wanted one. If
2: anybody's wanted to see Wesley die,
1: this is the trilogy for you right here. It's like we were all calling dips and we were like, Well, we can all do it. He's a time traveler. There's ways to make this absolutely there's alternate versions. But in fact, you know, what I love was just the fact that we reimagined Wesley as a superhero. You know, he's he's basically Mm -hmm. like Doctor Who and the TARDIS all in one. Uh so he's a time lord who can move around without the need of a TARDIS.
2: I like that. I like that. I mean, that was like in the time two series, we got some of that. Right. right. So, yeah, Yeah,
1: I guess I would kind of love to see, you know, a section like a copy of this trilogy find its way to Will Wheaton, because I just feel like, you know, it was written out of love for, you know, the, the guy he's become and the persona he's built over the years. He's just such a cool dude. Uh, and I would love for him to you know get a copy of this and just know. Dude, we wrote your character as a freaking superhero because you're awesome. There you
2: go.
1: I would love for him yeah, to Now, that. how would
2: Jonathan mm-hmm. Frakes feel how you wrote his character in this? Crazy Riker.
1: Uh, he'd probably say, wow, well, I didn't get to do anything near that fun. <laughs> Why didn't I get to do that on the show?
0: The whole time reading this, I was imagining like how much Jonathan Frakes would love chewing that scenery, playing that version of the character. I, I feel like he'd have a gas doing that
1: right, because he's not just playing a pure villain. He's playing a, he's playing a guy who's terribly tormented, who's lost his family. Like, have you guys checked out the, uh, I did a Spotify playlist of the music, the songs that sort of in, informed my thoughts about these characters. And the one that I picked for this haunted version of Riker is a song called Hurt by Johnny Cash. And it's basically, he it says, you know, you, you can take all this from me. You can take my empire dirt. You know, this notion that everything I have is worthless. Everyone I love goes away at the end is one of the lyrics of the song. You know, what have I become my sweetest friend? It sounds like he's talking to Deanna. So in a way, I basically, I didn't think of, you know, Riker the bad as being this guy motivated by psychotic evil. He's being motivated by absolutely unbearable pain, unbearable grief, unbearable loss. And it's coupled with, Temporal insanity, disjointed memories, uh, struggling personalities fighting to emerge. He's not evil. He's confused. He's, he's deeply wounded. And it's only the fact that he's an admiral that nobody's willing to stand up to him because military personnel are trained to be deferential to flag officers, even in the worst of circumstances.
0: Yeah, and we'll, uh, we'll definitely put a link to that playlist in the show notes for sure, because uh, that's really cool.
1: Absolutely, there's a lot of fun stuff there, and I did a, uh, I think a Facebook thread and a Twitter thread uh, where I sort of explained wh- who each track was meant to sort of be a commentary on.
0: Well, one uh, one last thing I want to say about Wesley is uh, you were um, saying like send a copy to Will Wheaton and and he'd get a look at it and he comes across as a superhero. That said, you did still manage to get a shut up Wesley joke in there, so uh, yes. kudos for that. Well, you
1: gotta have one. You gotta have one. <laughs> yes. It just, it's too funny to have Mirror Picard suddenly out of order to just have to go, shut up, Wesley. And then realize, oh, that was strangely satisfying. Why, why did I enjoy that?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Dan. I forgot about that part. When I got to it, I was like, oh, I want to bring that up, and I forgot. So I'm glad you remembered that. <laughs> so that's, that's cool. What about, let's talk about uh, our DS9 characters, like, you know, Kira. The Hand of the Prophets here in Cisco, like, you know, let's tell us where how you decided to take their journey in this, especially with Bashir, too.
1: Well, I mean, Bashir obviously is a character that I've taken a special interest in over the years, and uh, I've done a lot of storytelling with him since Zero Sum Game, which came out in 20, uh, 2010, I believe. And you know, I took him through that, and then through uh, a ceremony of losses, which came out in 2013. You know, where he basically tried to redeem himself. Basically, tw- in 2010, in Zero Sum Game, he gets seduced into the spy world, where he's always loved this idea of espionage and spies and James Bond, the gentleman spy. And he gets tapped by Starfleet Intelligence to do this mission, where he's told, you know, it's a whatever it is. It, it, it's the kind of op where you're basically told. You can kill. You have a license to kill, and you've got to accomplish this objective, and you, you have a presidential order. Go get it done. And he does, and then in the course of pulling off the mission, you know, he winds up killing a lot of civilian scientists on the other side. He ends up killing a lot of unarmed people, and it's only afterwards, in the years after he comes home and has time to really think about what he's done, that he realizes, I wasn't the good guy, was I? And like so it's even implied in the story. If you look at the point of view, where he's basically this ruthless, cold-blooded machine on his mission, doing what he does, the most sympathetic character in a lot of those ending scenes in Zero Sum Game are the brain engineer. whose job is just to build the ship. He's just an engineer. He's just a scientist. He's just there to do his job. He wants to go home to his family at the end. And then this maniac comes along and kills everybody and blows up the station, blows up this guy's work he's just an engineer. But, you know, so we've got Bashir with his crisis of conscience and that takes us into ceremony of losses where he feels the need to redeem himself. So he takes it upon himself to lead the effort to fix the uh, Andorian reproductive crisis. And it turns out that the secret to doing it is held in the Starfleet archives by Section 31, it's information about the Shaddai that's been locked up since Operation Vanguard in the 23rd century, Section 31's, you know, trying to dole some of it out for political purposes. So he basically uses his connections to 31 to steal that data, which is, you know, state secret pain of death kind of stuff. And he gives it to the Andorians. he uses it to build the cure, which he gives to the Andorians in complete defiance of the order of the uh, president pro tem uh, currently you know, in control of the Federation and he goes to prison for it. And so he's got this whole arc, and then he gets out and disavowed. He gets presidential pardon from the new president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he has the disavowed leads us into control, where he basically exposes the malevolent artificial intelligence behind Section 31, takes it out, exposes all the operatives, destroys pretty much the entire organization as it exists at that point in the 24th century, but in the course of doing so, loses Serena Douglas has to see her killed in front of him. He goes catatonic. And this leaves him in this broken state, which is where we find him at the beginning of Coda, living under the care of Garak, pretty much uncommunicative, self-imposed mental exile where he's locked himself inside his own mind. And so for me, you know, the question was, well, what's going to be the thing that brings him out? We talked about it. And we agreed that it was going to be the moment when someone has to bring him the news that Ezra is dead. That's going to be the moment that breaks through the wallowing self-pity and lights the fuse of anger. And that's going to be the thing that's going to bring him out from behind that curtain. But now he's not the same Bashir we remember anymore. Now he's he's broken in a lot of ways. He's angry. He's bitter. He's got a lot of uh, self-loathing that he's still got to deal with. There's, there's a lot that's just damaged in this man. There's something just, a little bit crazy behind his eyes now. And then of course you've got Cisco, who, as far as I know, David R. George had put him in command of the ship, the Starship Robinson. And he'd had his mission in the Gamma Quadrant. There was a lot of stuff that David R. George III had been doing in the DS9 books with Cisco, with Sisko's uh, family and the whole, you know, Majoran religion stuff. There was so much and it was so complex And we really wanted to address it. We wanted to do something with it, but it was so complex and so in and of itself. Like it was so clearly something that had to be resolved on its own terms and which could not simply be repurposed to make sense within the context of CODA that we had to let it go.
2: Yeah, because I was wondering about Rebecca Sisko and her abilities. I I thought she would play into this somehow. Not
1: our story not ours to tell. That's the problem is that it was so many moving elements and there was so much complexity to what he was doing that we realized we just, we can't, there's no way we can address this in a satisfactory manner. We have to sort of just fastball past it. There's just no way to deal with it. And we sort of leave the door open. I mean, if someday they want to write another DS9 book that ties that up, we hopefully have left enough space in the continuity between where he left off and where we made things end, that maybe he can fit one more story into that span of time that resolves that before CODA begins. Who knows? Maybe that could actually happen. Maybe it won't. I don't know. All I know is there was just so much that we could not do. The original hope, and I think Dayton and James May both have mentioned this, we wanted to do what were called breadcrumb books. We wanted to have not just the trilogy, but we wanted there to be like maybe two or three books that would be dropped into the schedule in the year ahead of the trilogy's release that would address a lot of these long running storylines in the different series in TNG, in DS9, maybe in DTI or something else, just to sort of, you know, tell these three self contained stories that maybe wrap up those storylines, but which also each contain a breadcrumb, a clue, some bit of precipitating business that you don't realize it when you're reading into the time, but when CODA comes out, you realize these were the beginning seeds of CODA. This is where CODA started to intrude into our universe. And it would have been great if we could have done that because then we could have taken the time that we needed to address the many complex and long-running storylines of Deep Space Nine. Maybe we could have negotiated something with Kirsten where we could have found a way to do a Voyager storyline that respected what she did or gave her a chance to you know, do one more story that tied into what we planned to do, and so on and so forth. The problem was is that we wanted to do that at a time we didn't realize the book schedule was contracting. We had gotten used to, over the last several years, a schedule of 12 books a year. And then it was down to like 10 books a year, then nine. And we thought, well, maybe there's still room to do something like this. And then things just sharply contracted again to the point where there was no opportunity to do breadcrumb books. So again, you know, there's just, there were so many elements left that we had to leave behind. Would it have been great if we could have somehow addressed all of them or found some way to fold all of them into this? Sure. But in the end, that's not the story we were trying to tell. And we didn't really feel like we could do justice to all of those different long-running storylines and tell the story we were trying to tell at the same time. So we had to make a choice, and the choice was let that go and do what we know we need to right. do.
2: But then you were able to focus on Cisco and, like you said, Bashir, and then, of course,
1: Kira. As Hand of the Prophets, which is a weird thing to bring back after all these years. Originally, I was asked to develop the whole Hand of the mm-hmm. Prophets thing for my novel, my DS9 novel, Warpath. I was asked to do it by Marco Palmieri. And he originally had this idea that Kira as Hand of the Prophets was going to be instrumental in the upcoming struggle between the prophets or the Bajoran people or whatever, and the Ascendants. And that was what it was supposed to tie into was the Ascendants storyline. And it was supposed to have some significance to that. Kira was supposed to have some role in that, but he hadn't decided what at the time, or if he had, he didn't tell me. He played all his cards very close as an editor. He told his writers at the time only what he thought they needed to know, the bare minimum of what he thought they needed to know to be able to write the book he wanted them to write. So I knew very little, but I just knew, all right, this is what I get to do. I get to do these visions while Kira's in a coma. She's going to do these sort of weird medieval fantasy type visions and she's going to find out she's called the hand of the prophet the emissary is the message she is the action i'm like okay well that's pretty cool now as far as i know maybe that paid off maybe that didn't i never got to finish that storyline i don't know if david r george did but we eventually realized that we said well even if it was used even if it did come into play in the ascendant storyline that doesn't necessarily mean that her role as hand of the prophets is over and that may be a status that she continues to enjoy she's still referred to by this sobriquet just as you know uh, cisco is still the emissary she is still the hand but that gives her some status that gives her some juice that gives her you know agency in the story it gives us an excuse to give her agency in the story and i thought all right well let's have a little fun with this and we thought well you know we'll will misdirect, will make you think that it's more political, it's more about status, it's more about uh, responsibility, so that in the second book, the fact that she feels she has to be the one to commit the station, the, the rebuilt DS9 on its suicide course in order to destroy the wormhole in her universe, that she feels she has to take this upon herself and that this is the purpose of the hand, which it very well might be, except then we Misdirect you because yes, that was her purpose as the hand in that universe. But then she goes to the mirror universe. She's still the hand, and the hand has one more mission. And that mission has brought her where she needs to be. That mission is to bring the orb of time to this version of the wormhole in this universe, and basically make sure that you know it's put to use in a certain way so as to complete the mission. And you find out also that hand of the prophets is unique so in a way it was kind of fun like i'm going back to you know like maybe the fourth novel i'd written maybe the fifth it was like definitely like in like the first five or six novels i would written so i'm going back to like really my earliest work here and i'm recontextualizing books that i wrote in my 30s which is a strange feeling (laughs) but uh it was kind of fun just to say all right maybe hand of the prophets doesn't mean what we thought it means. Maybe it means something else. Or maybe it means all of it. Maybe it doesn't just have to mean one thing. Maybe it means all these things.
0: And I, I found it interesting, too, that the prophet tells her that you're just the hand, this version of you, you are the hand, that's it, kind of thing. I thought that was...
1: You are unique.
0: Yeah, you are unique.
1: No other version of Kira is the hand. Mm-hmm. You are the hand. So it gives her, you know, again, it gives her a reason to feel she was special. Her life mattered. Also, the prophets tell her at the same time, we remember forever. She's like, no one's going to know what we did here. No one's going to remember the sacrifices we made, the lives we led. And the prophets say, we remember. We remember forever.
2: Yeah. See, that's the thing about this is even this is taking place in a different timeline. It does have effect on the prime timeline.
1: It does and it doesn't. The prime. Most people on the prime timeline will be unaware of it. It'll have no direct effect on them that they realize. Right. But the prophets who exist in the prime timeline, whether they'll ever say it or not, they know. They
2: know. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They remember. And speaking of knowing and remembering, let's, let's get to that end there with Picard in the prime timeline. He's got all these different flashes going on. Let's...
1: Well, that might be prime timeline. There might be other timelines. There are actually countless timelines all sort of folded together. And as when he's saying to Anish, it'll be a relief for me to find out which of these are real. And she says, <laughs> Jean-Luc, that's the first lesson. They're all real. The whole point of, of chapter 40, and it's really kind of spelled out and made, I think, as clear as I could make it in the scenes with Picard and Aneesh. And then uh, I think there's maybe like one other bit in there, but it's made clear, you know, there and then also the bits with Benny, these stories, just because they have come to an end it does not mean that they did not matter. Mm -hmm. Just because these people's lives and their timeline had to be erased because they had to sacrifice themselves for a greater good, doesn't mean their stories didn't happen. It just means, well, that timeline didn't happen, but the prophets remember, Benny remembers, we remember. And Benny specifically says, you know, these timelines are just as important as any others. These stories matter as much as any others ever did the story doesn't cease to matter just because it's over. It doesn't cease to matter just because you know the, the timeline got erased. The story still matters. And so that was sort of the note of hope. Like that's the reason why the epilogue, the grace note, is titled What Remains to be Seen, because it's from the lyrics of The Garden by Rush. The lyric is, hope is what remains to be seen. So what I'm implying by the title of the grace note what remains to be seen the answer is hope
0: i i loved leaving off on that note because yeah we're we're made to understand and and you know hopefully people understand that yeah these stories just because you know some quirk of some television show means that they now have to exist separate from everything they're not going to disappear off your bookshelf and the hours that i spent with these characters and reading these novels that's not wasted time. That that was important, and right.
1: The story is saying the stories still matter,
0: mm-hmm. and I really hope people understand that and people take that to heart.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's also like lots of little subtle things, like you know the the very last line, for instance, of the grace note. You know, a new future begins here. Well, that refers to both the fact that. This new sentence that Benny Russell has just written in a fit of inspiration happens to be the first sentence of Una McCormick's The Last Best Hope, mm-hmm. which is the prequel novel to Star Trek Picard. It implies Picard is the beginning of a new future. It implies her book is the beginning of a new future. But he's saying a new future begins here. And he's saying it on September 8, 1966, which is the date Star Trek premieres. A new future begins here. It can be taken on many levels. And the whole point is they're all beginnings. Every beginning, and T.S. Eliot said, "You know, uh, to make a beginning is to make an end, and often what we call the end is uh, is actually a beginning. The end is where we start from."
0: And and to totally undercut the the beauty of that moment, I totally had the uh, the Garrick meme in my head where he's sitting across from Bashir, and
1: they're all true.
0: Yeah, Bashir. Which of these stories matter? Even the tie-ins, especially, <laughs> especially the, tie-ins. the tie-ins. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that would be a great theme
0: you guys and
2: you've mentioned it earlier we'll relate this to what was done in star wars with the eu and its term legends and they didn't really wrap it up and you guys wrap this up the thing i like about this is now we don't have to call this continuity the necessarily the lit verse or the post nemesis the novel. first splinter timeline it's the first splinter timeline would you? I don't think they would do this, of course, but would you want to see what like uh, they did with Star Wars and label them those novels as legends that these older novels are now labeled as first? No, spinner? it'll just confuse
1: a little bit hell out of people. <laughs> the books are fine, labeled and marked the way they are. They don't need to be relabeled. Nobody needs them to be recontextualized. They're fine just the way they are.
0: So, speaking of of the new series, I know, of course, uh, your both a huge fan of and involved with Star Trek Prodigy. Obviously, probably not any like adult tie-in novels or anything like that, but any idea on plans or, or ideas for some sort of tie-in for Prodigy?
1: Nothing that I've been consulted about. The person really to ding on that would probably be either Dayton Ward, who would then tell you he's under an NDA, he can't answer your question. John Van Sitters, who would laugh and then expertly divert you into answering another question and then make you forget what you asked about in the first place. It would be great. The issue, I think, with Prodigy and Times is the same as almost all the other new shows are having with their tie-ins, which is that the show's continuity, from the point where you first join the show, and then as you watch the characters, what happens to them week to week, the timing of those episodes is so tight. There is so little dead air, so little space to work between the episodes and the continuity and the serialized narrative are so tight that really, where are you gonna fit in a novel length story? And I don't know that Prodigy necessarily would support a novel length story. I think it might support a novella, I think it would probably, because of the nature of it, uh, because of the visual medium that it comes from, I think it would probably work better as a comic book. I think IDW must be developing something. I don't know this for a fact. No one's told me anything. But I would be very surprised if IDW is not currently developing Lower Decks and Prodigy graphic novel material or monthly comic book material of some kind. Just because they are animated media i think they're going to have a readership that's going to want to continue to experience the stories with some visual component i don't think they they would translate as well to a strictly prose prose environment a strictly prose format the way some of the other more adult uh series have so i don't know what's going down the pike for those but uh I think obviously, you know, middle grade books or YA books for Prodigy would be brilliant comic books, uh, especially, you know, if they didn't have to edit themselves or be in any way morally upstanding or correct, would be hilarious for Lower Decks. Because of their intrinsic formats, I don't see either one working in novel format.
2: Speaking of Prodigy, Rock Talk, did you have any input into the species of Rock
0: Talk?
1: I'm going to plead the fifth so that Peter David doesn't send assassins to kill me.
0: <laughs> Fair <Good> enough. <answer>.
2: <laughs> but you you've been able to sprinkle some things from oh, the, sure. the well, my, s-
1: Oh, my fingerprints are all over this thing. Are you couldn't. Yeah. Uh, for instance, uh, chimerium, which is what they're mining at uh, Tars Lamora. Chimerium was something I thought up and which first appeared in the SCE novella, uh, two-part novella, Invincible which mm-hmm. I wrote with Keith R.A.D. Candida, which came out back in like 2000, 2001. So there's that. I, I managed to sneak in Chimerian. The notion that uh, Zero is a Medusin in a robot body, that came from me. And yeah, I might as well just own it. Obviously, I'm the one who told them to make uh, Rock, Talk, a Brick R. Uh, the, that's obviously my fault. And then there were just lots of little details like that. There's like lots of little things from time to time like, there are moments when they originally wanted to have the characters blast their way out of a situation with torpedoes i had to point out well torpedoes actually the wrong weapon there you're in an enclosed space that's a 64 megaton warhead things are going to go off the blowback alone is going to kill everybody in that place so what you want there is a surgical strike you want a phaser like a scalpel so it's phasers are what you want there and they went oh okay we'll use phasers and so we want this action sequence here how do we make this happen so that we can do this with the shields. Would the shields do this or would the shields do that? And uh, I was able to say, well, you know, they, they would do this. So if the character's already there, that can't happen. But if your character was leaping in an attack and then the shields come on, well, then you could have your effect. And they went, oh, all right, we'll, we'll do that then. So it's basically it's not so much me suggesting uh, story ideas or whatever, but them saying we want to do this what is the most Star Trek compatible way to do this? Or given the start limits of what we know about Star Trek technology, if we do this, how do we do that? How do we make this do that? And then I say, well, you can do this or you can do that, or you do this other thing, or here's another possibility. But if what you want to get to is this, then do that.
2: Are you going to do that with strange new worlds?
1: No, I have not been asked to consult on strange new worlds. I currently am completed uh, all of my contractual obligations to Star Trek. I did 20 episodes of consulting work for uh, prodigy. I did 10 episodes consulting work for lower decks. Um, and then that's it. Uh, I you know, Now that Coda is out, I don't currently have any work under contract with Star Trek or anybody else. I'm just sort of flinging words onto pages and hope Maybe I can come up with something that my agent can sell someday, but for the moment, I'm done. I'm just sort of, you know, out here treading, treading water.
0: Well, for any, uh, any projects that do come down the pike for you in the future, where can people find that out, uh, online?
1: Well, if, if you want to, you know, if I'm going to announce anything, I'm probably going to announce it on my Twitter feed. Uh, so I'm on Twitter at David Allen Mac. That's David Allen, A-L-A-N, A-L-A-N Mack M-A-C-K. You can find me on Facebook at D David Mac. That's my official author page. And you can find my website at davidmack.pro. That's davidmack.pro.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show and talking about this uh, this novel and this trilogy. Like I said, I I really enjoyed it. It was a heck of a ride. And uh, hopefully we do get more from you in the Star Trek universe soon because – You know, you're honestly when 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 a new David Mack Star Trek novel shows up, it's just I know it's going to be an amazing read. So I don't want to be without that forever. That's
1: very kind of very kind of you to say. Thank you. And it's always a pleasure coming on your show, talking with you, gents.
2: So how awesome was that? I've been waiting for a long time for this moment because I couldn't wait to get this trilogy. I couldn't wait to get to the end of the trilogy. And I couldn't wait to talk about the end of the trilogy.
0: Yeah. What a discussion. I mean, uh, you know, discussion with David Mack is always fun. Uh, very colorful, lots of colorful metaphors <laughs> and, uh, you know, fun discussion both before and after we hit record as well. So, yeah. So we're at the end of the Coda trilogy. All three novels are out. What are your some of your final thoughts on maybe this novel in particular, but also the trilogy as a whole?
2: You know, when I read this novel it's pretty much what I was expecting, which was, you know, the end of the timeline. But I kept thinking that there was going to be something that's thrown in there that just something unexpected that turns it, which it didn't do. But of course, David did explain that, you know, that that's not the purpose of the story is to all of a sudden fix the timeline. So I'm glad they didn't go that route. You know, they, they kept to what, the intent was not just, well, the timeline is going to end. Oh, no, nope. just kidding. We found a solution at the end. You know, that trope of in anything, it's like, you know, the heroes find something at the very end. And it doesn't always go their way. So I, I loved at the end where we have Picard, the different visions of things that kind of leaves things open. and does explain that there's other Picards out there or other situations and different timelines and the whole Benny Russell thing. But yeah, just experiencing our characters going through the heroic moments of trying to do something that if they can't save this timeline, they can at least save other timelines, especially the prime timeline. So they're going out in that one last blaze of glory, a heroic moment. And I mean, there was a lot there and i it was a page turner, you know, like I just kept wanting to keep going and going and not stop. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. I gave it five stars on Goodreads and I'm not sad that the whole continuity is ended. I mean, of course I'd like to see it continue, but there's so much more Star Trek coming that I love the idea of exploring. Okay. This is what we thought happened and did happen, but now let's, let's take a different view of, of something, how else it could have happened, you know? And so when we get Star Trek Picard, it's just another take. And I like getting those different stories.
0: Yeah, I have to echo, I think, 99% of what you said there. I really enjoyed this trilogy and this final installment in particular. I think they made a lot of really brave choices. You know, this would have been as hard a trilogy as this is to read. And we know we've seen some reactions online with a lot of people not liking how it went. But as hard as it was to read, I can't imagine how hard this was to write because, you know, you're, you're doing this, this coda to the 20 years of, of literature, this universe that people have invested time and energy in. And I, I love the way this wraps up because as we said in the interview, it still matters just because this is the end. It doesn't mean that everything that came before suddenly doesn't matter you know, the actions, and I know this is from a a fictional standpoint, but the actions of the people in this splinter timeline saved the prime timeline as we know it and saved the rest of, rest of Star Trek. And in that way, they mattered one last time in a very, very big way. And I, I think that's a, that's, you know, what's the alternative to how this ended? You know, we talked about that with David. The alternative is it just, stops and fizzles out and we get no more stories well that would be so much more disappointing than what we got here what we got here was this incredible page turning story like you said a wild ride with in my opinion an amazing excellent ending that just left me feeling so many feelings I can't say anything bad about this trilogy because I truly did enjoy it so much. And I know there will be fans out there that that question me on that and say that that's not true. And David put it perfectly when we talked to him after we stopped recording. People are dealing with grief. They're grieving the end of this continuity and, and people are dealing with that in various ways. For me... I'm like you, I'm excited to see what comes next. So yeah, I have to give this five out of five Commonwealth jaunt ships leading the charge against an implacable foe. So uh, yeah, top marks for this for me and for the trilogy as a whole. This might be one that uh, I, I'll need to leave it for a little while, but I might revisit again in the near future just to kind of reread it and absorb it again. Because I, I think this is incredible storytelling, Star Trek novels and, and storytelling at its finest for me personally. when I know you just finished
2: reading it just hours ago, and I remember when I finished reading it, I had to think about it for a little while, just kind of process it. I knew I enjoyed the book, but I thought, you know, wh- you know, how do I feel about this? What, what does it all mean? And the more I started thinking about it, the more I kept thinking about how it just also leaves things so open, you know, everything we just said about what the characters did in this and, and how they had to deal with their, the end that's coming works so well. But at the same time, I thought, you know what, the Deep Space Nine being destroyed that we saw in this continuity may not happen now in the prime continuity because you know in my mind these books for all intents and purposes were canon in a sense you know like the you know what happened to deep space nine after the tv series it's what happened in these books and now that we're like well now that things are returning back to tv that's going to contradict these books. But then it's like, oh, well now I'm interested to go, what really happened to Ben Sisko in his return? How does that really take place? We know one version of it. Now we can see a different version and that'd be interesting to see how that takes place. But going into this book, I really was convinced that they would leave it something open-ended that this continuity continues on. We just won't come back to it. It's like, you know, you, if the Kelvin timeline is done, if they weren't, if they're not going to make another movies, which I, I don't know if they are or not, but if they're not going to make any movies in the Kelvin timeline, we don't need another movie to end it. We just say it's over. yeah you know, we're just, you don't need to destroy the Kelvin timeline, but I didn't feel like it was necessary to destroy it, but it's an interesting concept and it works really well for me.
0: Yeah. I, I personally really liked how they, they ended it. I, I wouldn't have necessarily liked I think the like the ending of Deep Space 9 where the camera pulls back and Deep Space Nine's still there and it's just kind of goes on or the end of TNG where the Enterprise flies off for new adventures I wouldn't have been as satisfied I think and and that's not me being, you know, bloodthirsty and wanting to see everybody die or anything like that but you know it it gave this universe or this this continuity these novels we've read it gave them I think a send off, more of an event than it would have been otherwise. And again, coming back to them saving all of reality as we know it, you know, that's just that's kind of cool.
2: And David was saying that this book it's about hope. You know, he was emphasizing hope. To your point, if they had done what you're saying like the camera pulls out and then we'd be sitting here talking about, well, it's over, but I mean, who knows in the future They could still do more stories. I mean, the timeline's still out there, and we would be hoping all the time that we'd get some novel sometime in the future that takes place in this timeline, and now we're not going to be wondering that and hoping for that anymore. So, David, you've destroyed my hope for more stories in this (laughs) timeline, but that's a relief to me that I don't have to keep wondering if we'll ever return to this, which in some ways, you know, we could return to it. That takes place before CODA. But it's Mm -hmm. over, you know, it's done.
0: Well, the other thing is too, like going by the conceit of the novel and what we've seen of parallel realities and timelines and quantum realities and all that stuff, there probably are still lots of realities out there that are very close to what happened in the novel verse. It's just that this particular timeline, this first splinter timeline had to be destroyed, but... As we see in that final chapter with Picard, there are infinite versions of these characters. And in much the same way that in this trilogy, we revisited a parallel quantum reality where Riker was in command of the Enterprise D and all this stuff, and we saw them show up again, we could see something similar in the future where, you know, we see something similar to what happened in this timeline or even in the novels. There's absolutely no reason why new novels set in the prime timeline couldn't use some characters like Miranda Katahata or, or Prin Tenmei or Chen or any of those characters, you know? So we're still getting novels presumably written by many of the same names that wrote all of these. And there'll be lots of little Easter eggs and stuff in there. So uh, you know, it's it's an end, but it's not the end, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we saw it in the Dark Veil, you know?
2: We had, mm-hmm. from the Titan, some crew members in that, that we are very familiar with. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not the total end. It's just a new
0: beginning. Exactly. Now I've got, like, Closing Time by Semisonic in my head, of all things. Boy, <laughs> am I a child of the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Uh what what's that line? Every new beginning is some other beginnings end? One of those lines that I'm sure I thought was really deep when I heard it in high school, and now I'm like, like hey, what claptrap? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Bruce, uh, if people want to talk to you about the Coda trilogy or ridiculous song lyrics, uh where can they do that? I'm on Twitter
2: at admiral underscore rex. That's admiral with an underline rex, and I've occasionally been on literary treks and
0: the star Wars report podcasts. Excellent. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurt That's K E R T R A T S youtube.com slash Kurt productions. And of course the positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. Also check out positively Trek on Twitter and email us positively Trek at gmail.com or visit us on Goodreads where we have our Goodreads group talking about all the books that we discuss in the book club and what's coming up in future episodes great discussions happening there. We'd love to see you there. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in the next episode. But until then, as always, stay positive.